America's founders understood that private property is the foundation not only of prosperity, but of freedom itself. James Madison, the principal author of the Constitution, explained, quote, As a man is said to have a right to his property, he may be equally said to have a property in his rights. Private property rights are enshrined in the Constitution. In particular, the Fifth Amendment states, Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. The Fifth Amendment, applicable to the states via the Fourteenth Amendment, is designed to bar government from forcing some people alone to bear public burdens which, in all fairness and justice, should be borne by the public as a whole. The government takes private property. It must provide compensation. One question that frequently arises is, when does a taking occur? If the government takes the entire fee interest in a piece of land, the analysis is straightforward. It represents a per se taking, and compensation will be due. But property as a concept is broader than fee ownership alone. Property denotes all the uses or rights that can be made of a parcel of land, the so-called bundle of sticks of property rights. The bundle of sticks includes the right of possession, the right of control, the right of exclusion, the right of enjoyment, and the right of disposition. Will a taking exist when the government limits or restricts only one of those rights in the bundle of sticks? In 1978, in Penn Central Transportation versus New York City, the Supreme Court held that government regulations, like zoning laws, for instance, will constitute a taking only if they limit the use of private property to such a degree that the landowner is effectively deprived of all economically reasonable use or value of their property. In determining whether a regulation goes too far in this regard, and therefore constitutes a taking, courts are to consider the economic impact of the governmental regulation, the extent to which the regulation interferes with investment-backed expectations, and the character of governmental action. However, the question of what constitutes a regulation, and whether the Penn Central test should even apply, also isn't always clear. One recent example involved a California law known as the California Agricultural Act of 1975. This was a signature pro-union law passed with the support of famed migrant labor activist Cesar Chavez. One key feature of the law allowed union organizers to access agricultural land to speak with the workforce. The purpose of the law was to allow unions to solicit support and organize migrant laborers. In 2015, the United Farm Workers Union utilized the law to access agricultural land owned by Cedar Point Nursery, a strawberry plant grower, and Fowler Packing Company, which ships grapes and mandarin oranges. The landowners claimed the access regulation was a per se taking under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments and brought suit in California federal court for a violation of their constitutional rights. The trial court dismissed the case holding that the regulation was not a physical taking because the access was not, quote, permanent and continuous. And thus, under the Penn Central test, the regulation did not go too far in burdening the owner's property rights. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed, and the Supreme Court took the case. Would Cesar Chavez's legacy live on in a key provision of this California law, or would private property rights prevail in this case? This is Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid.
Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff. Today we're discussing a case that pits private property rights against the rights of workers to organize. With me is Joshua Thompson, Director of Equality and Opportunity Litigation at the Pacific Legal Foundation, which represented the landowners in this case. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So, Josh, you lost at the trial court level, you lost at the appellate court level, and you applied for review to the Supreme Court. There you won six to three. And the reasoning was essentially what you had argued throughout the litigation, that the regulation at issue appropriates a right to physically invade the landowner's property, and therefore, it constitutes a per se taking. The Penn Central ad hoc balancing test does not apply. But the first thing that actually struck me about this case, at least from an advocacy perspective, was how you handled during the oral argument, the justices' questionings regarding the Babcock case. And for our listeners, the Babcock case was a Supreme Court case from the 1950s in which it reviewed a sort of a similar provision in the National Labor Relations Act. And in Babcock, the court held that the law should be interpreted to allow access to the land by the unions, but only if that access was necessary to gain access to the workers. So for instance, if the workers lived on the land and that was the only way the unions could gain access to speak with them, then it would be considered constitutional. And at oral argument, a couple of the justices, including Justice Kavanaugh, thought that this California law went too far under Babcock because the workers, in this case, did not live on the land. And so the law should be struck under Babcock alone without even getting into this per se taking versus Penn Central ad hoc balancing test. But at oral argument, when Justice Kavanaugh suggests this to you, I think he even said something to the effect of, to be clear, Mr. Thompson, I'm saying you win under Babcock. And you sort of stiff-armed the suggestion. And you said, no, this is a per se taking. Now, I'm sure this line of questioning did not come as a total shock to you. But even still, when you're standing up there in a courtroom and you have a Supreme Court justice telling you win under a different theory, but you're so disciplined to stick to your theory, I'm sure that took a lot of planning and, and preparation. And I am really interested in how you came to that strategy where you were going to stick to your guns no matter what they said. Yeah, thanks for that question, Bob. It is certainly true that Babcock was front of mind in our preparation, that we understood that this case that dealt with labor relations from the 50s and access to private property was the most factually analogous case that we had to reckon with from the Supreme Court. At the same time, Babcock was not a takings case. It was a, it was a case that dealt with the interpretation of the Federal Labor Relations Act. And in that respect, 
Babcock really had had nothing to say about a takings claim. Now, it's true that during questioning, I, I sort of mentioned that to Justice Kavanaugh, and he says, well, yeah, okay, but if you read the briefs in Babcock, which I, which I hadn't read the briefs from the 50s, he says that it, they deal all with constitutional avoidance and that they're worried about interpreting a regulation in a way that would cause a taking. And I, and I said to him, I said, yeah, that, that may be true, but it, it was unclear to me as someone who brought this case, how we could have, how we could have advocated Babcock at the outset. We brought a takings claim, not a claim under the Federal Labor Relations Act, which didn't apply to our California regulation anyway. So in some res respects, our preparation of Babcock dealt with dealt a lot more with how how could we read our challenge to not upset that precedent because we didn't want to we didn't want to advocate a position that would have resulted in them questioning a prior Supreme Court decision that was still good law. So my preparation of, of Babcock dealt with that issue more. And so when Kavanaugh pushed me on, you know, I, I think you win under Babcock, I think I said something like, I agree we would win if you were balancing access versus private property rights, because our case was a lot more extreme than Babcock. But at the same time, it didn't make sense to me in the moment as, as a, a, a takings principle. What the court would have had to have done is create a brand new takings test. As you sort of laid out at the outset, we have these per se takings rules. We have these Penn Central rules. There's no Babcock takings test. So what Kavanaugh was essentially advocating for was a brand new takings test. And I was very reluctant to advocate for that position. Penn Central is a mess. And we have a case that PLF brought in 2015, 2016 called Murr versus the state of Wisconsin made it even more of a mess. It's one of our sad losses at the Supreme Court. But the idea is we wanted a per se rule. We wanted a strict rule that could provide clear guidelines for property owners and to protect constitutional rights. It was easy from an advocacy perspective to say no, one, this is, backpack's not a takings test. And two, we need clear lines here to protect property owners and protect private property rights and to enforce the Fifth Amendment. One of the things that, I mean, I, I just felt like you were extremely disciplined when it came to all of the questioning. And they're coming at you. I mean, there's nine of them up there, one of you. And so maybe this is a variation on the same question, but what did the preparations for the oral argument look like for you? I will say the most I've ever prepared for an oral argument, which should come as no surprise. This case was, you know, it's a pretty straightforward case in that everybody agrees on the facts. It's a pretty clear line of precedent to deal with per se takings. Yet when you sort of get in the weeds, you realize all the different ways that when the big light of the Supreme Court is shining on an issue that they can come at you. So Internally, we had moot courts. I had a team of, of trusted uh, attorneys with me that I've worked with on a number of cases. And, you know, we tried to think of, of all the issues that they can come at us with. Um, when the amicus briefs on the other side came in, that provided a lot of other ammunition for how we thought the court could come at our case. And then we, we did moot courts and we practiced answers. So we, of course, did the Georgetown moot court. I did a moot court with uh, the Chamber of Commerce. I did one with Heritage Foundation, and each of these had, you know, Supreme Court clerks that had, or, or I think, uh, uh, and other Supreme Court advocates that had argued many, many times before the Supreme Court. So we did our homework in getting 
and getting a lot of different perspectives on how they thought the Supreme Court could come at our position. But ultimately, I think the big takeaway that I sort of learned through that process is by, by going after sort of every way you could poke a hole in our argument from a from an advocacy perspective, I think what I learned is I, I ended up sort of believing every argument we were making in a way that oftentimes as an advocate, you're trying to advocate for a specific position. But when you really go into the weeds and try to understand on a deeper level why you're advocating for each position, it became over time pretty easy for me to answer all these questions because it eventually became I knew this better than anybody, and I believed that we had the right answers. I believed we were the most consistent with current precedent. I could explain how every precedent that the court could plausibly use in our case applied in, in the way that I thought it ought to apply. And that sort of deep knowledge and understanding of the issues, I think, is, is what made what I think is a, a pretty successful oral argument for property rights. I'm curious, you know, in private practice, we're constantly being asked to estimate how much time a particular piece of litigation will take and how much it'll cost and things of that nature. I'm, I'm curious to prepare for an oral argument before the Supreme Court. How many man hours would you estimate you spent? I probably spent around, I mean, I, I do have the numbers, so at least what we what we recovered in the attorney fees from the state of California, I have that somewhere. I would guess it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 to 300 attorney hours preparing for the oral argument. That's like aside from the, the briefing. Is that you, just you or you and the team? That would be, I think, just me and the team would add more on to that. Yep. That makes sense. Fortunately, I, I work in a nonprofit, so we had the luxury of being able to devote the time to that. And I had the luxury that my particular job gave me the opportunity to put things aside where I could focus exclusively on oral argument for the Supreme Court. I want to come back to one of the points you were making, which is through your preparation, you gained so much knowledge that, that you felt like your theory was accurate. It was the right theory. And one of the issues that, that came up during the litigation at least from, I think it was Justice Breyer, was the idea that your legal theory, if you carry it to its logical end, could put an end to certain forms of government inspections like nuclear materials inspections, pharmaceutical inspections, food safety inspections, et cetera. And your, at least at the oral argument, your position on that, which I thought was really interesting, was essentially that these types of searches were permissible at the time of the founding as evidenced by the Fourth Amendment, which basically says, well, there's a limit to government searches. So, and it's a reasonableness one, but because these types of searches were contemplated by the constitution, they're not subject to the takings clause. They're not offensive to types of property rights that are protected by the constitution. Now, the majority opinion sort of glossed over that. They kind of went in a different direction and, and said that those types of inspections are constitutional conditions. They're sort of implied as a part of the grant of a permit or a, a license or something like that. But I thought that your position that, you know, the searches were permissible as a matter of constitutional law 
it really signaled a, a thoughtful and comprehensive view of property rights and constitutional theory. So I want to ask from a sort of a bigger picture perspective, where do you see this case fitting into the narrative of property rights in the constitutional analysis? You know, do you see this case as a significant step forward in the Supreme Court's protection of property rights? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack with that question. You're right. I think the one area where the Supreme Court did not agree with the position that I advocated and that I believe was the right position was this idea of government inspections. And, and we spent a lot of time on that issue and I, I gave it a lot of thought. And we were certainly aware of the constitutional condition argument as, as a way to resolve that conundrum. Because frankly, if we couldn't resolve that conundrum, we wouldn't have succeeded because the court was not taking that case in order to strike down government inspection regimes. That was, that was no chance. So we gave that a lot of thought and I, I continue to think the right way to think about that is that everybody, when they own property, they possess certain rights as you sort of laid out at the outset. And one of those rights that everybody subjects their property to is that if the government has a good enough reason, it can come and search your property. And the Fourth Amendment puts limits on that. You can't keep the police out if they have a warrant, for example. That's a good enough reason for them to come in and search your property. And so that's sort of inherent in property ownership. And that's why I think we have this whole inspection regime that is governed by Fourth Amendment law. If these inspections go too far, they're subject to to Fourth Amendment uh, scrutiny. I just don't think that that's a, a taking of your property right. It would it would become a, an illegal search well before it became a taking. That was my position. The court, as you know, disagreed with that. And the reason I think the court disagreed with that is because at the time it wasn't prepared to say that there's this line of, of case law that talks about where do property rights come from, that they're a function of state law. And if they're a function of state law, then that sort of says that, well, then the state can, you could just say that the regulation that we were challenging was part of the background principle of state law. And therefore you took your property subject to that regulation, then we didn't take anything from you. You knew when you acquired that property that this regulation encumbered it. And so the court wasn't ready to say that there's no, there's a body of sort of like common law or federal property rights that exist uh, outside of a state law creation. So it said, so it put those inspections into the, into the unconstitutional conditions bucket. I think that raises additional problems that the court may have to wrestle with in the future because it didn't adopt what I think is my more coherent position. But since Cedar Point, the Supreme Court in another PLF case this past year has recognized that state law is in the end all be all of property rights. A case called Tyler versus Hennepin County where we were challenging home equity theft, but the court recognized that no, there is sort of a, a federal, a universal right that you, you have by possessing property. I think if that case had predated Cedar Point, the court might have come in my direction. So now to get to maybe your, your actual question, where does Cedar Point fit in the hierarchy or in the lineage of, of property rights. I think Cedar Point was an important precedent 
to stake out clearly that the right to exclude is paramount and that that, that deserves per se treatment. One of the things that I think we want to do at PLF and that we think would be helpful for property rights generally is to find those other rights that are inherent in property that also ought to get per se treatment. You mentioned at the outset, like the right to possess. Why, why should the right to exclude get such, I mean, there's a reason why we thought the right to exclude was the easier case, but there are other things that if the government divests you of the right to possess your property, should that not also get per se treatment? And try to move other different rights out of the Penn Central morass and into sort of clear rules on property. So Cedar Point was necessary to sort of stake out that the uh, right to exclude is per se, but it also sort of gives a model for thinking about property rights and how the Supreme Court can avoid these balancing tests of Penn Central, I think, going, going, going forward. Well, and I think that's a good seg into, you know, if you could just sort of uh, explain to the listeners, you know, what is Pacific Legal Foundation and, you know, how did you guys decide to get involved in this case? Pacific Legal Foundation is a nonprofit legal organization that defends Americans' liberties and constitutional rights when threatened by government overreach and abuse. We've litigated 19 cases before the Supreme Court three this past year. PLF, we believe in individual liberty. We, when people are free to live peacefully and productively without interference by government, they improve themselves, their families, and their communities. We have three major programs at PLF, property rights, equality and opportunity, and separation of powers. This case fits clearly within the property rights program in that we were defending individuals' right to use their uh, property productively without interference by government. As you've kind of alluded to, PLF has had tremendous success in getting cases accepted by the Supreme Court. You know, I'd love to understand, you know, where does that success come from? In other words, what is the process either for selection, you know, right from the intake process all the way up to applying for cert when, you know, the Supreme Court is reviewing 10,000 applications per year and accepts less than a hundred. As you mentioned, PLF had three cases just this past term before the court. I mean, that's just amazing. You know, what is it that PLF does so well to get so many cases accepted by the Supreme Court? There's different ways to answer that. On the one hand, we try to file 15 to 20 petitions a year. So our success rate is something like, I don't know, five to 6%. It's gone up in the, more recently. But part of it's a volume game. We feel if we can get 20 petitions a year that our petitions are of a quality that we expect one to get granted every year. We've had a lot of success recently. There are ways that you can make your petition more likely to be granted. Obviously, we have networks where we try to reach out and get amicus briefs that are submitted in our in our support that we can demonstrate to the court that this isn't just affecting this individual, but it impact it affects individuals across the country. That that's an important factor. There are other things that the court looks to, like it looks to is there a circuit split? Is there dissents on on your case? We had that in Cedar Point. We had not only a dissent on our panel decision, but we had when we sought in bank review, eight judges dissented from the denial of bank review. That that made our 
question presented to the Supreme Court pretty easy in that we said, as eight judges on the Ninth Circuit had explained, this case is of national importance and you should take it. But, you know, we, from the outset of how we design cases, we take cases in order to establish appellate precedent. And so we know the precedent that we want to establish. We try to, as a nonprofit, we can solicit clients. So we go in search of those best cases, those best issues that we think have the chance to make it to the courts of appeal. That's a big chunk of our work. We often also take over cases after they've been litigated at the trial court and individuals run out of money. And we think there's still an important issue that can that can be litigated. We'll take that case and try to litigate that up through the courts of appeals. And we do have we do have people that contact us that that are you know we probably get two thousand or so public inquiries a year, maybe five to ten of those actually become cases. So it's a very small percentage of our caseload, but we we read all of those inquiries and we take them all seriously. And we're trying to find those diamonds in the rough that can get to the Supreme Court. We need to you know we're we subsist on donor dollars, so we need to find those cases that can fulfill our mission the best. And we are very discriminating against what those uh, what those issues are and what cases we think the Supreme Court will ultimately take. And not, not lost on me that we have a Supreme Court right now that, uh, you know, is, is interested in the issues that PLF litigates. It's taken a number of property rights cases, separation of powers cases, and equal protection cases. We still got to get the court to be interested in economic liberty, but that's maybe a discussion for a different day. What other cases do you personally have in the pipeline that you think might end up in the Supreme Court? Yeah, I think one of the cases that we're, that we're most excited about, I personally am most excited about, is a case out of Virginia. The Students for Fair Admissions case just came down holding that diversity in higher education is not a compelling interest. And one of the issues that that decision raises is what about when universities or, or Harvard just starts to go underground or starts to use different proxies in order to achieve a, a racially diverse student body? Can they, what can they do in, in that respect? And we have a case that uh, comes out of uh, Virginia, Thomas Jefferson High School, which is the number one public high school in America where we allege that they had remade their admissions program basically in the wake of George Floyd uh, three years ago in order to uh, remake the student body. But unlike Harvard and unlike North Carolina, uh, race-based admissions are not, have never been constitutional in K-12, so they had to do it through what we allege are race-neutral proxies. And so that case went to the, we won, the, we won, the, we won summary judgment at the district court District court said, yes, you've unequivocally proven that this plan was adopted with a racial purpose and it's had a, a discriminatory effect on Asian Americans. The Fourth Circuit reversed that decision in a 2-1 decision with a dissent. So again, we're, we're, we're ticking off the boxes of what makes for a good Supreme Court review. I think in, in the opinion in the Harvard case, the Chief Justice's language sort of anticipates this as the next big issue on the horizon. We have that case. The Fourth Circuit was split over how it should be decided. The district court agreed with us, and we'll have a boatload of amici that, that think the court should take it. So I'm, I'm very hopeful the court does take it. I think it's an important issue, and we'll see what happens. Even, even with all of those factors in our favor, I still think the, the likelihood of a grant in any Supreme Court case is, is not high. So 
we'll put forward our best foot and we'll see if the Supreme Court will take it. Incredible stuff, Josh. You know, thank you so much for your time today and best of luck on the Virginia case. Thanks for having me, Bob. Really appreciate it. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you were involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at burnkofflegal.com. That's rstetson at B-E-R-N-K-O-P-F legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments, on Twitter at Legal underscore Judgments, and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in Judgments.